Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Sunday, the 21st of November, 1937, and thousands of people are gathered at Essendon Aerodrome and other vantage points in Melbourne's western suburbs to watch a 17-year-old girl make Australian history. Jean Burns, the country's youngest female pilot, is in a DH-4 plane called the Spirit of Melbourne as it flies up, 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 into the spring sky. But this time, Jean isn't at the controls in the cockpit. Instead, she's wearing a parachute, and as the machine reaches an altitude of 3,200 feet, Jean jumps from the plane. For spectators more than half a mile below, it's heart-pounding, not least because at first, Jean free-falls face down. Then, her parachute billows open above and she's pulled upright, floating gracefully on the wind as she descends to a paddock north of the aerodrome. A little moth plane swoops down, lands and scoops up Jean for her triumphant return to the airstrip, where she talks to reporters and enjoys the adulation of the crowd. Jean says of her jump, It was great. The first plunge was breathtaking, but when the parachute opened out, I was able to watch my progress and wonder where I was going to land. The only time I felt a little uneasy was when I saw a pool of water and thought I was going into it. The next day, Melbourne's The Argus runs the page one headline, Parachute Jump, First Woman in Australia. And that claim echoes in newspapers from coast to coast. But old-timers reading these stories? They know that, as brave as Jean Burns is, 
to say she's Australia's first female parachutist is way off the mark, and they write to newspapers to say as much. See, when they were young, the Van Tassel sisters were famous for doing repeated parachute jumps that were far more dangerous. And these girls didn't use planes for the simple reason that, back in 1890, they hadn't been invented yet. Instead, Valerie and Gladys Van Tassel would rise as high as 6,000 feet in crude canvas balloons, dangling beneath them upside down on trapezes before making dazzling descents with primitive calico parachutes that resembled nothing so much as oversized umbrellas. For six months, these queens of the air ascended into and descended from the skies over Sydney, Melbourne Adelaide, Brisbane, and lots of other places besides. The Van Tassel sisters were famous for their daring, but also briefly infamous for a scandal that was an affront to a colonial government, its defence forces, to the British Empire, and even to God in his heaven. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Despite the cautionary myth of Icarus flying too close to the sun only to plummet back to Earth, humanity has always dreamed of being able to soar into the skies. Man achieved this first in France in November 1783 when François Palatre de Rosier and François Laurent de Londe went up over Paris in a hot air balloon. In 1797, another Gallic aeronaut, André-Jacques Garnerin, became the world's first balloon parachutist when he jumped from a balloon over Paris. Two years later, and keeping it in the family, his wife Jean took the title of world's first woman parachutist. But ballooning down under? Well, that took a long time to take off. There wasn't a manned flight in Australian skies until February 1858 when an English chap named Joseph Dean flew over Melbourne. But it was Australian-born daredevil Henri Lestrange who made our first parachute descent in April 1879, even if he didn't mean to. After his balloon burst over Melbourne, the silk chute attached to the deflated balloon inflated as it fell and saved his life. A decade later, in Sydney in December 1888, a Mr J.T. Williams became Australia's first on-purpose parachutist when he jumped from a balloon at about 5,000 feet. Yet, even before this historic jump, Sydney audiences were getting aerial thrills of a different sort courtesy of the Trapeze Act performed by the Freitas sisters. Valerie was 16, Gladys two years younger. Both girls were compact and athletic with wide-set facial features, brown eyes and blonde curly hair they kept cut short. Their first appearance was on the 4th of July 1885, American Independence Day, at the New Masonic Hall in Castlereagh Street in Sydney, where they were advertised as charming young American lady trapeze artists making their first appearance in these colonies. But were they actually from the United States of America? Available records are inconclusive. 
Such programs depended on Ballyhoo for box office takings, so advertising them as American imports may have simply been a publicity ploy. Certainly, later advertisements and articles rarely mentioned any American connection, and one newspaper report claiming their parents were residents of Milson's Point seemed to suggest they were locals. In any event, following their Sydney shows, the girls made it as far as Darwin, where they performed in late 1886 as part of Woodyear's Royal Australian Circus. This circus is thought to have toured Southeast Asia and the subcontinent, which aligns with then-famous magician and mesmerist Madame Cora saying she'd met Gladys Freitas in Calcutta during this period. By mid-1889, the Freitas sisters were back in Sydney for a season at the Haymarket Music Hall, performing what the Sydney Morning Herald would call, quote, the most marvellous feats in mid-air ever witnessed in Australia. But it was what they were going to do in the coming months that would raise the trapeze bar to new and unimaginable heights. The man who would take Valerie and Gladys Freitas' careers into the heavens really was an American. Of Dutch heritage, Park Van Tassel was born in Indiana in 1853, and he became obsessed with flying after seeing balloon demonstrations as a boy. He would later recall how he made his first balloons from paper and sent them up on the hot air generated by burning rags, and was punished when one of these flaming contraptions dropped into a neighbour's field and set fire to a crop. Perhaps befitting his Dutch origins, Van Tassel grew into a big, blonde-haired youth. Before he was 20, he married a woman named Elizabeth Spencer. Van Tassel moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he owned the Elite Saloon and worked its bar. In 1882, chasing his childhood dream, Van Tassel bought a balloon from California and had it shipped to Albuquerque, whose new gasworks could inflate it and send him skywards. Renaming himself Professor Van Tassel for that added air of scientific authority, Park made his first balloon ascent on Independence Day 1882 over Albuquerque. When the professor tried another balloon ascent in Las Vegas the following month, he couldn't get off the ground. Newspapers reporting that the desert city's high altitude meant the thin air weighed the same as the gas he was using. Professor Van Tassel persisted, and the next Independence Day, he took his balloon up over Salt Lake City in Utah. But his new business was risky beyond the inherent physical dangers. Just getting into the sky was far from assured when inflating a huge balloon in even modest wind was very difficult. And getting airborne? Well, that was no guarantee of getting paid. Professor Van Tassel's ascents were usually the main attraction on a variety program, with audiences paying a nickel or dime for entrance to an enclosure where they could see support acts such as foot races or bicycle demonstrations and have a close-up view of the balloon and aeronauts. But any cheapskate outside the enclosure or in surrounding suburbs would still have a pretty good view of the balloon flight without spending a single cent. 
Professor Van Tassel would complain about these deadheads, as they were known, throughout his career. Although, perhaps it was karma in effect, because the man himself was also renowned for leaving angry creditors in his wake. By hook or by crook, Professor Van Tassel kept his enterprise afloat, though his next big adventure in San Francisco in December 1884 was nearly his last. Beneath a huge canvas balloon called the Eclipse, which was inflated with 65,000 cubic feet of gas, Professor Van Tassel took to his basket with three passengers, including a reporter from the San Francisco Examiner. The men shot up over the city, but the ascent was too rapid due to a stuck valve and the balloon was soon passing through 8,000 feet. The professor told his passengers, Boys, if this continues for a few minutes, we may as well make our peace with God. The balloon will burst. At the last moment, Professor Van Tassel managed to unstick the stuck valve to release gas and the balloon began a slow, hours-long descent. But as they tried to make their landing, the men faced a new danger because the professor couldn't stop the eclipse from coming down in San Francisco Bay. Lowering an anchor on a long rope, the men quickly shed their clothes in preparation for immersion. Hitting the surface, the basket bounced and was dragged and soon filled with water. The naked aeronauts clung to its side before, finally, the anchor hit the bottom and their terrifying splashdown came to an end and they were rescued by a tugboat. In 1885 and 1886, Professor Van Tassel settled on a safer way of bringing in the bucks, setting up a tethered balloon ride in San Francisco and then Los Angeles and charging brave folks to enjoy an ascent and bird's eye view of these cities. To stay successful, any good showman has to keep upping the spectacle, and so in 1887, Professor Van Tassel added a new attraction to keep the crowds coming, a parachute jump from his tethered balloon. But he didn't jump himself. That honour fell to another so-called academic, Professor Tom S. Baldwin, who was actually a daredevil who'd been making balloon jumps for the past two years. Though Professor Van Tassel would later claim that Professor Tom Baldwin got to make the jump because he won the toss of a coin, the truth was that Van Tassel now tipped the scales at more than 200 pounds and was too heavy to be supported by the parachutes they used. He was also too smart to put his life on the line when he could pay someone else to take the risk. On the 30th of January, 1887, over San Francisco's Central Park, Professor Tom Baldwin rose to 500 feet and shook out a parachute that looked like an enormous umbrella. Stepping out of the basket, he plummeted for a second as the crowd of 10,000 people below screamed their lungs out. Then his chute opened and he came back to earth in a graceful five-second descent. In 1888, Professor Van Tassel augmented his often dicey box office revenue by plastering the name of the Fredericksburg Brewing Company across his balloon and throwing bundles of its advertising leaflets from the basket as he ascended. 
And as that year's Independence Day approached, Professor Van Tassel had a surefire publicity stunt for the beer company. The Los Angeles Herald announced, A balloon ascension with startling denouement is promised at one o'clock. Aeronaut Van Tassel and his wife promised to seek the heaven in a gas bag at that hour from the old Haymarket, Los Angeles Street. Mrs. Van Tassel announces that when the balloon shall have attained the height of 1,000 feet, she will leap with a parachute from the aerial traveller and descend to Earth. It was all going to be incredibly thrilling, but a question remained. Which Mrs. Van Tassel? See, Professor Van Tassel had long since left his first wife, Elizabeth, and apparently also ditched his second wife, Clara Koikendahl. Los Angeles newspapers didn't report the first name of this mystery Mrs. Van Tassel. Whatever her identity, Los Angeles' chief of police was determined to stop the show. He didn't believe balloon jumping was an occupation that should be undertaken by women. And he certainly didn't want Mrs. Van Tassel to die in a public spectacle on Independence Day and so dispatched a detective to prevent potentially suicidal shenanigans from taking place in his city. Hearing the cops were on the way, Professor Van Tassel and his wife jumped into the balloon basket more than two hours before their scheduled liftoff, accompanied by an amateur aeronaut acquaintance, Mr. D.E. Barclay. The trio soared heavenwards and Barclay told the LA Herald that at 5,000 feet, Mrs. Van Tassel was as calm as could be as she looked down, climbed up onto the edge of the basket and, quote, stepped off into space. Peering down, Barclay's heart was in his mouth until he saw the canopy open and sail downwards, quote, I knew that the first parachute descent in the world by a woman was a complete success. As for brave Mrs. Van Tassel, she landed safely and said she'd loved every second of it. She told the LA Times, I ain't exactly a bird nor an angel, but it's just about what I imagine the sensation of flying is. It was beautiful. Whoever Mrs. Van Tassel was, she was soon replaced by the professor's newly acquired brother, Professor Joe Van Tassel. Joe was actually 26-year-old Joe Lawrence from Salem, Ohio, who had forsaken medical studies to become a circus acrobat and parachute jumper who sometimes worked with Tom Baldwin before he partnered with Professor Van Tassel. The Parachute Act had by now been refined so that Joe would hang from a trapeze below the balloon attached to the parachute by a cord. On his brother's signal, which was a gunshot, he'd cut the cord and fall free. But this new method had nearly killed Joe. As the New York Times reported, he was ascending for a parachute jump, the rope became twisted and he could not jump. The balloon soared upward to such a height that the overinflation caused a split in the balloon and it descended with the aeronaut from a height of 8,000 feet. He fell with such force as to be stunned. Stunned but still alive thanks to the semi-inflated balloon and ready to accompany Professor Van Tassel on a world tour that would take the troop as far south as Australia. But 
Their first stop was Hawaii. The Honolulu advertiser explained just how Joe would meet the island's particular weather challenges. Quote, Should the trade wind prove strong, the aeronaut will be carried out to sea. But he carries a life-preserving float and a fleet of yachts and steam vessels will be ready to pick him up. Joe didn't need them for his first jump, which was a picture-perfect ascent and textbook parachute touchdown on land. But in the lead-up to his second jump, Joe was concerned about entrusting his life to Professor Van Tassel. On Saturday the 16th of July, he wrote a letter to his fiancée saying, Van has been beastly drunk ever since we have been here and has made more enemies than friends. I have not been going around with him and he is mad about it. I told him that I was not raised among barroom loafers and would not associate with them. We are supposed to make an ascension this afternoon, but things are not ready, and Van is at home, in bed, drunk, and if there is anything done, he will have to do it, as I will not take any chances on my life with a drunken man. If I can get a position here of any kind, I will remain in preference to going along with the party, all of whom have been on a continuous toot since leaving Frisco. They have all spent the money they had. I am very nervous this morning. But Joe couldn't back out of that afternoon's ascent, not when it was being staged as part of the Hawaiian King's birthday celebrations. At about 2.15pm, Joe readied himself for flight, accepting a life preserver, but then handing it back at the last moment. Up, he floated over Honolulu and within three minutes had reached an altitude of about a mile over the King's Palace. Thousands cheered as Joe cut himself loose. But instead of floating down, his parachute was caught in the trade winds, as was the balloon, and both were swept upwards and then out over the sea, floating for another 10 minutes way beyond the reef before coming down as specks out in the ocean. The rescue steamer didn't have a steam going, and that flotilla of yachts wasn't ready. It was half an hour before boats reached the spot where Joe had hit the water and a three-hour search proved fruitless. Though, fortunately for the professor, the balloon was recovered. The Daily Pacific Commercial Advertiser's headline read, His last leap, Professor J.L. Van Tassel's parachute jump into eternity. The US consul was less poetic. Writing to Joe's parents, the diplomat said, Great blame appears to attach to the Van Tassel brothers. He was referring to Park Van Tassel and his manager Frank Frost, who permitted the ascent to be made at the time the trade winds were blowing so strong offshore and that no boats were outside the reef to pick him up. Poor Joe's body was never recovered, which offered Professor Van Tassel the opportunity to spread or at least not refute, the story that the doomed aeronaut hadn't drowned, but instead had landed smack bang in the ravenous jaws of man-eating sharks. 
On the 11th of December 1889, the same day that this shark story was being reported in several Australian newspapers, Professor Van Tassel steamed into Sydney Harbour aboard the Matson ship Mariposa, accompanied by Manager Frost and another accomplished parachuting balloonist named James Price. Professor Van Tassel got to work quickly and his ad in the Daily Telegraph on the 20th of December read, Tomorrow, Saturday at 4pm, Professor Van Tassel, the world's greatest and most daring aeronaut, will give an exhibition at Bondi Aquarium. Ascending with his mammoth balloon to a height of one mile and jumping from balloon to Mother Earth with only the support of a frail parachute. No humbugging, no fraud, performance as advertised. Of course, that jump was to be performed by James Price, who'd become Professor James Price Van Tassel. Sydney's Australian Star newspaper's headline neatly summed up Professor Van Tassel's first aerial adventure down under. Ever so high, a brilliant balloon ascent, 5,000 feet skywards, cool as a cucumber, a lovely spectacle and a successful trip to Earth. That first balloon jump was a success, but further attempts at Bondi Aquarium in late December and early January were frustrated by bad weather. At least the thousands of people who turned up each time could console themselves with the support acts. There was a tightrope walker, a clever gymnast and the Frieda sisters performing fantastic feats on their flying trapeze. Seeing a potentially very profitable new angle, the professor recruited the girls, rechristening them Gladys and Valerie Van Tassel and promoting them as his sisters. The newly bolstered troupe went to Newcastle at the end of January, where James Price Van Tassel made a successful jump, though repeated efforts to do a jump at Maitland were frustrated by high winds. Their next attempt on the 8th of February 1890 was at the Newcastle Racecourse. There, it was promised daring young Valerie Van Tassel would ascend into the heavens by balloon and return to terra firma by parachute. The Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate reported, It will be the first event of the kind ever performed in the colonies by a lady, but as she is a first-class athlete, no particular danger is apprehended. Easy for an earthbound journalist to say. No doubt Valerie was a talented trapeze artist, but there was plenty of danger to be apprehended. While she and Gladys had made test ascents with the professor, neither had made a parachute jump before. For Professor Van Tassel, there was no sense in doing a practice run hidden away from a paying audience. If Valerie was going to perish, well, he was going to turn a profit on it. On the appointed afternoon, things didn't look promising, with the wind again proving a problem. But around 4pm, the wind died down enough so that inflation of the balloon could begin. While Professor Van Tassel used gas when available, at locations like this, he and his crew relied on a more primitive method to generate hot air. 
They dug a long trench, filled it with branches and timber, and then soaked this wood in kerosene. The trench was covered with iron plates, save for an opening at one end for air and an opening at the other end which fed into a cloth funnel that fed the balloon, which was hung on a rope between two tall poles themselves kept upright with guy ropes. Once set ablaze, the trench became a fiery wind tunnel, filling the balloon with hot air and pungent black smoke. As the balloon inflated that late afternoon, the band of the 4th Regiment played and the Van Tassel sisters performed trapeze tricks. Disaster nearly struck when the balloon was scorched by fire and needed a few repairs. But by 7pm, though daylight was dwindling, all was ready. The balloon resembling a giant cone and straining against the mooring ropes held by dozens of volunteers. Wearing a stage costume that was revealing for the time, Valerie kissed her sister and got onto the trapeze hanging beneath the balloon. The command was given, let her go. It'd be hard to describe the scene better than the uncredited reporter from the Newcastle Morning Herald and Miner's Advocate who wrote... As the balloon began to move away, the occupant was told to run with it, and she promptly obeyed the instructions, but only for a step or two as the balloon shot up quickly hundreds of feet before the spectators could believe that it had got away. When bidding goodbye to Earth for a while, the plucky occupant of the car, who was dressed in fancy costume, waved one disengaged hand to those below. The excitement by this time was intense and the people made a wild rush in the direction of the glebe to see the result. The balloon reached a great height, travelling in a southwesterly direction and presented a beautiful sight as its great mass showed clear against the dark blue sky, while the knowledge that a human being had to descend from that height gave an almost painful interest to the proceedings. After proceeding some distance, the firing of a shot was the signal for the descent from the clouds to be made. The people strained their eyes above to see what the response would be, for that was the first parachute descent that the young lady had ever attempted. To hesitate is to be lost, and death would possibly be the result of postponement, so the dread leap has to be made. Something leaves the balloon. It appears a thick line against the sky with a dot underneath. The line increases in thickness. The form of the falling woman appears when suddenly the parachute opens to its full extent and rounds of hearty cheering arose from the spectators. For the velocity of the descent is seen to be greatly diminished and the parachute with its living load suspended falls gently to the earth. Valerie Van Tassel had just become the first woman to make a parachute jump in Australia. After more weather problems, a week later, it was Gladys's turn, with her adding a thrill that would become a standard part of the act. The Newcastle Morning Herald and Miner's Advocate reported. When some 300 feet up, she hung by her toes and an acclamation of wonder burst from the crowd, which rose to a cheer when she kissed her hand to them. 
When Gladys dropped, an immense roar went up from onlookers before the parachute opened and she descended gracefully, though some 200 feet from the ground, Gladys was seen to set herself swaying so she wouldn't crash into a shed. Besieged by an admiring and breathless crowd, Gladys said she was ready to do it all over again. It is a fine sensation to go up, but a better one to come down, she said. Gladys would later describe jumping this way. The sensation for a few seconds is a remarkable one, particularly if you let go while you are still ascending, and the prominent sensation is that of complete helplessness. Just for those few seconds, the parachute is limp, the ropes slack, and the bar of the trapeze no support. It is like standing on nothing, as if one's body had become as light as a feather. Then, as the downward motion commences, the chute begins to open and resist the air. The ropes become taut. I can again sit at ease on the bar. A week later, the Van Tassels were back at Bondi Aquarium, with it now Valerie's turn to perform for a crowd of thousands. Despite being on the coast, being unable to swim, and it being less than three months since Joe Van Tassel had met his maker, Valerie didn't wear a life preserver, and nor were any rescue craft at the ready. When the balloon shot up, Valerie found herself carried by strong winds towards Coogee, and was almost out of sight of the crowd when she detached and parachuted back to Earth, fortunately landing in a suburban garden. Talking to Sydney's Telegraph newspaper, Valerie claimed she hadn't been afraid, though the danger had been very great. She said, It was as bad a day for parachuting as you could easily get. There were two things which I had to consider. One was the chance of being dashed against the rocks, and the other was the risk of being driven out to sea. The first meant probably anything from safety to jelly, and the second would have been no better because I can't swim. Rather than taking steps to ensure the safety of his aeronauts and his audience, Professor Van Tassel, in true grandiose showman fashion, focused on bigger plans that would bring in bigger profits. He said he was going to build a huge coal gas balloon that would be big enough to take up the whole family so they could all come down simultaneously in separate parachutes. But the professor said he could only stage such a spectacle if people would stop being so stingy, refusing to pay a shilling to see his aerial queens risk their lives. On the 5th of March 1890, Gladys made her first parachute jump over Melbourne, where 10,000 people had each paid a shilling to enter the enclosure at the Friendly Society's Gardens. Even though this box office was good, many thousands more crowded any vantage point around the city, from Government House to the footbridges over railway lines and the balconies of houses around the gardens. Professor Van Tassel sent out men to hand out dodges, which were sheets containing a printed rebuke to these freeloaders in an attempt to shame them into paying. This tactic actually worked, particularly on men who realised they didn't have one-tenth of the courage of the Van Tassel sisters. 
Gladys's ascent and parachute jump led to this piece of commentary in the Age newspaper. Most people found it difficult to imagine that a young lady could possess the courage to assay a feat from which 99% of the so-called stronger and more courageous sex would turn away in dread. Miss Van Tassel is a person apparently of the most unassuming type and would in ordinary life give out the idea that she is simply typical of the great number of her sex who would scream at the sight of a mouse and faint outright at the suggestion of being left alone during a thunderstorm. The ordinary observer, however, would be very much in the wrong in his estimate of the young lady's character for she is one with an iron nerve, and she talks of an ascent of 4,000 or 6,000 feet as the ordinary observer himself would speak of an ascent in a lift up to the fourth or fifth story of one of Melbourne's high buildings. Valerie did the next Melbourne jump for an even bigger crowd of 12,000, but the success of the Melbourne tour was somewhat tainted by Professor Van Tassel, still as fast and loose with his money as he was with the truth, being arrested under the Absconding Debtors Act because he owed £80 to Madame Cora, who'd been unwise enough to partner with him. By this time too, James Price had hung up his Van Tassel tag, departing the troupe to set up his own balloon jumping concern with another aerialist named Millie Viola, with whom he'd worked in the United States a few years earlier. Next stop for the Van Tassels was Adelaide, where Valerie appeared to have settled right into the role of Lady Daredevil. In an interview carried by several South Australian newspapers, she said, Well, I am pretty well used to the sensation now. Even so, she wasn't taking her fans for granted. I always take a great deal of pleasure in the work and am always pleased that the performances are appreciated by the public. Perhaps the trickiest part of her job was keeping in shape. She explained, Yes, it is really necessary to take a lot of physical exercise. Skipping with the rope is a splendid thing and helps to keep one in good form. If I leave off my training exercises for a week, I sadly feel the want of them. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On Thursday, the 22nd of May, the Van Tassels were in Brisbane with Valerie pulling off another textbook jump. Then, the following Saturday at Brisbane's Breakfast Creek Sports Ground, it was Gladys's turn. From 4pm, the balloon, hanging on a rope between two 40-foot poles held up by guy ropes, was being inflated, and, as usual, a curious crowd ringed the professor, who urged them to stand back for their own safety. The crowd obeyed, for a moment, and then people closed back in. Suddenly, 
one of the guy ropes failed and a huge pole toppled. Panicking spectators ran and one of them, a 12-year-old boy named Thomas Reed, tripped on a rope and fell. Brisbane's Telegraph newspaper reported he was brought onto his knees and in that position was struck on the back of the head, his skull being cracked like an eggshell and brain and blood scattered in all directions. Valerie and Gladys were horrified and Professor Van Tassel cancelled the show, refunded admissions and went on the defensive, saying the accident wouldn't have happened if people had kept back. But witnesses said the guy poles hadn't been sunk deep enough into the earth. To this, Van Tassel replied he didn't rely on digging them in to any great depth because his guy rope system had always proved stable. An inquiry was held later that week at Brisbane's City Police Court. Conflicting evidence was given as to whether the professor actually had warned the crowd to stand back and whether it had been the balloon's inflation that had pulled a guy rope anchor up out of the ground and caused the pole to topple. But Professor Van Tassel and his witnesses were adamant that the guy rope had failed because someone in the crowd had accidentally interfered with it. Either way, questions were raised about why this dangerous area around the balloon hadn't been cordoned off. When all the evidence had been heard, Professor Van Tassel was found not to have been negligent and not to have caused the boy's death. His show was free to go on. On Saturday the 31st of May, back at Breakfast Creek Sports Ground, Gladys went up and down by moonlight for a crowd of some 3,000 people. Perhaps spooked by the boy's death the previous week, this time Gladys did take a life preserver up with her. The troop headed north by steamer to Maryborough, and there Gladys and her balloon disappeared up above the clouds. Having reached 7,500 feet, she made her jump, shooting out of the clouds to the amazement of the crowd. But Gladys's landing was a close call, with her smashing into a few tree branches as she came down in a swamp. The vast new height she'd achieved, the spectacle of her shooting from the clouds, and the danger of the landing, well, it all made Gladys seem like a superhero. The Maryborough Chronicle put it this way, The universal verdict of the performance seemed to be that, not only as a spectacular effect of the most novel kind, but as an exhibition of true grit, it was unequalled. Next, the Van Tassels steamed to Rockhampton, where they staged a show and then went on to Townsville, where they planned a balloon jump on Saturday afternoon inland at Acacia Vale. But their steamer ran late. Not a problem, Professor Van Tassel announced. He would simply stage the show on Sunday, in the afternoon of course, so it wouldn't conflict with church services. Not on our watch, said an outraged group of religious men, led by Brisbane firebrand Reverend James Stewart. 
This man of the cloth and his cronies beseeched the city's police to stop the balloon ascent from desecrating the Sabbath. The police said they had no power in the matter. Reverend Stewart cabled the chief secretary to request his intervention, but he didn't get a response. So, on the Sunday, Reverend Stewart and his supporters went to Acacia Vale to stop the pagan professor's scantily clad temptresses from ascending into the heavens on the Lord's Day. To groans and boos from the crowd, Reverend Stewart and two holy rollers stepped into the enclosure. In the name of God, he said, and in the name of all that is good and pure, he was protesting against desecration of the day of rest. These people were bringing disgrace on Townsville, on Queensland, and on the British Empire, and everybody should be heartily ashamed of themselves for being in attendance. A police inspector argued with the reverend and one of Professor Van Tassel's minions asked the man of God to kindly leave the enclosure. The reverend complied, but what he saw as he was leaving drove him to even greater righteous fury, while it also must have made the professor a very happy showman. 600 soldiers and cadets who'd been in camp nearby had marched to the grounds and their officers were shelling out a shilling each to afford these uniformed men and boys the pleasure of watching the titillating Van Tassels. From outside the enclosure, Reverend Stuart boomed. In the name of the right-thinking citizens of this colony, I protest against the members of the Defence Force which costs this colony £60,000 a year and to the support of which we largely contribute, being allowed to assist in desecrating the Sabbath. Delivering a further insult to all that was right and holy, these men and boys had been ordered to the show by their commanding officer, Colonel French. To Reverend Stewart's increasing horror, the headquarters band played their instruments while soldiers and cadets helped feed the fire to inflate the balloon and encircle the professor to help maintain order. But the ultimate sacrilege came when Major DeVoe went down on one knee and handed a bouquet of flowers to Gladys just before she ascended. Once Gladys was safely back on Earth, the military band played See the Conquering Hero Comes. Brisbane newspaper The Telegraph thought her less the conquering hero and more the, quote, goddess of Sabbath desecration. The newspaper's commentary continued. To begin with, the entertainment was indecent as well as illegal. Or, if it does not fall within the scope of recent judicial decisions against entrance charges for public entertainments on Sundays, it was such a gross affront to that section of the public who value the decorum and respect the sacredness of the Lord's Day that its repetition ought to be made illegal. The sight of Major DeVoe wearing the uniform of an officer in the Queen's military on his knees with flowers was by far the worst, with the newspaper declaring that it was, quote, impossible to conceive anything more contemptibly ridiculous than the chivalrous deference of this soldier to a female athlete. 
the scandal was even raised in Parliament. One member of the Legislative Assembly described the event as being, quote, the desecration of the Holy Sabbath by balloons and parachutes and other devices of the evil one. With pressure mounting, Queensland's Premier sided with these critics and Colonel French was forced to issue an abject apology for ordering his soldiers and cadets to march to the Van Tassel show and for allowing them to assist the balloon ascension. While Reverend Stewart and others did have a point about using the military for such a purpose, the Sabbath day objections also came with much prurience about impressionable men and boys being subjected to the sight of a shapely woman in a skimpy stage costume. Not to put too fine a point on it, but Reverend Stewart and other critics feared that seeing this spectacle would trigger an epidemic of ruinous self-abuse among the soldiers and cadets. And in fact, the balloon parachuting display, as it turned out, had actually been a cunning scheme hatched by the colony's southern enemies. With every member of the military gazing skyward simultaneously, the Allied forces of New South Wales and Victoria were able to invade, crushing Queensland and turning Brisbane into an apocalyptic hellhole. At least, that was the plot of the novel The Curse and Its Cure, which, inspired by the Van Tassel scandal, was written and published in 1894 by Christian utopianist Dr. Thomas Pennington Lucas, best known today as the creator of Lucas Pawpaw Ointment. The Townsville scandal marked the end of the Van Tassel's Australian tour, with the troupe having already planned to sail for Java, present-day Indonesia, and points beyond. As the Van Tassels made their way through Asia and the subcontinent, references to them all but disappeared from the Australian newspapers. We know that around September 1890, in present-day Surakarta, Gladys Van Tassel nearly smashed herself into the roof of a native house while performing for a prince. In mid-April 1891, the Bangalore Spectator newspaper in India reported another close call when the Van Tassel troupe performed for the Maharaja of Mysore. Without specifying whether it was Valerie or Gladys, the article stated, When Miss Van Tassel had ascended 100 yards, the balloon burst or split in two, letting forth a dark cloud of smoke, and great excitement ensued. Miss Van Tassel leaped from the balloon, her parachute acting instantly and landing her 150 yards distant from the place of ascent. She had a good shaking and very narrowly escaped from being dashed against a building. In February 1892, the Calcutta Englishman newspaper recorded that while the Van Tassel troupe were inflating their balloon at the Horticultural Society Gardens, there was a riot outside the grounds amongst soldiers trying to get in. Professor Van Tassel carried on. Miss Van Tassel ascended and came down, this time stuck in trees in the garden, which tore her dress slightly. Then... 
all of a sudden, the Van Tassels were all over the Australian newspapers again. On the 16th of March, 1892, the troop performed for the Nawab of Dhaka in what's now Bangladesh, with Miss Van Tassel ascending from beside the river at about 6.20pm. After a five-minute flight to about 6,000 feet, Miss Van Tassel jumped and descended gracefully, though again was unable to steer sufficiently to avoid getting caught in the upper branches of a tree. Unhurt, she coolly detached herself from the tangle of parachute, trapeze and ropes, while spectators rushed to help, carrying bamboo poles that would help her climb down to safety. But as she started down, one of these poles snapped and she fell headfirst to the ground. Suffering serious spinal injuries, Miss Van Tassel was rushed back to the Nawab's palace. There, her condition worsened. She grew feverish and paralysis set in. She succumbed the next day. This queen of the air having been killed by a fall of just 15 feet. But who had died? Valerie or Gladys? No first name was provided in Australian newspaper accounts and local reporters didn't appear to make any effort to establish which sister had died in such bitterly ironic circumstances. If, like me, you've come to admire Valerie and Gladys, you'll be glad to know it was neither of them. Here's why. Tucked away in a May 1891 issue of the Bulletin is a tiny item saying that Gladys had married an estate manager in Penang, Malaysia. If true, given the times, it seems highly unlikely that her husband would have allowed his new bride to continue ballooning her way through Asia. Further, later that year, the San Francisco Chronicle published the contents of a letter Professor Van Tassel had written to one of his friends from London on the 16th of August, 1891. In it, he told of his ballooning adventures in New Zealand, Australia, Java, China, the Philippines and Japan. Paraphrasing his letter, the newspaper said... Travelling with him at this time were two female parachute jumpers, both of whom laid some claims to beauty. Their charms ensnared two Hindustani of high degree, and both women accepted offers of marriage which were made to them. Van Tassel was thereby deserted, and he was compelled to dispense with his parachutes, preferring to encounter less risks in regular ascensions. Clearly, Professor Van Tassel had recruited another aerial queen. But who? An answer of sorts was found in the British newspaper, the Newcastle Evening Chronicle. The dead woman was Miss Jeanette Van Tassel, who'd been in India since around October 1891 with the professor. She was the Miss Van Tassel who'd had narrow escapes at Mysore and Calcutta. The Newcastle Evening Chronicle's correspondent wrote, 
She went with her brother to Dakar to make a last parachute leap, with the intention of afterwards retiring from the business, as the dangers she had run had quite unnerved her. This reporter said Jeanette was 18 years old, too young to be either Valerie or Gladys, and was, quote, by no means of robust or muscular build and had no great experience in parachuting, which, again, doesn't sound like either of the sisters. Jeanette's real name and origins are lost amid the ballyhoo and name changes that attended the ballooning business. So what did become of Valerie and Gladys? That, too, is a mystery, though there are tantalising clues to indicate one of them did return to the Antipodes to perform parachute jumps under a new name. In 1894, New Zealand was mesmerised by the aerial exploits of a female American balloon parachutist. A correspondent to the Otago Witness reported that he'd seen this woman wearing a cowboy hat wander by him while he was talking to a stage manager. He wrote, By Jove, I said, there goes Miss Van Tassel. Miss who? asked the manager. Miss Van Tassel, the balloonist, I replied. The stage manager said, Oh, you must be mistaken. That's Miss Layla Adair. Besides, don't you remember a statement going the rounds of the newspapers to the effect that Miss Van Tassel was killed in India in 92? The correspondent then referred to a paragraph from the Otago Witness dated the 22nd of March 1892 in which a letter writer had said, I saw Miss Van Tassel, the balloonist, going up to Poonar, a military station just out of Bombay last week, so please state she is still alive and kicking. That this sighting occurred one week after Jeanette Van Tassel died in Dakar suggests there was another Miss Van Tassel touring with the professor. Certainly the Otago Witness correspondent had his suspicions returning to his theme on the 7th of February 1895 when he wrote, Layla Adair is in Sydney. As I said before, where is Miss Van Tassel who was not killed in India? During interviews, Layla Adair, who admitted to a real name of Lena Raywood, said she hailed from Texas. She claimed she'd made her first ascent in the United States at the age of 13 or 14 with Professor Van Tassel and had since done hundreds of parachute jumps. Layla Adair claimed that her sister was Millie Viola, who'd been touring in Australia since 1890 with Van Tassel defectee Professor James Price. What's really intriguing is that in interviews both Layla and Millie claimed to have toured Australia with Professor Van Tassel in 1890, yet there's no record of either of them jumping for the Professor while Valerie and Gladys were his star attractions. While Millie Viola really was an aeronaut of repute whose feats had been recorded in the American newspapers in the late 1880s, I've been unable to find a single similar mention of Layla Adair or Lena Raywood before 1896. 
Instead, she appeared out of nowhere doing a jump at the Nepean show in Western Sydney in 1893 before really making her name in New Zealand the following year. Layla went on to make a news splash around the world in January 1896 when a parachute jump saw her nearly drown when she landed in Sydney Harbour. After that, she went back to America, staging shows in California. There, the San Francisco Call published an interview with her in April 96, in which she claimed to have worked for years in the early 1880s as a balloonist and parachutist in California. Quote, her success as an aeronaut was such to warrant her going abroad. Layla said she'd toured Australia, Asia, Africa and Europe before in 1891 returning to Australia and marrying the son of a gentleman of the English nobility. When he died around 1893, her love of the parachute saw her return to Australia and start jumping again. Despite her claiming to have made hundreds of jumps in the United States, the San Francisco Examiner advertised her act as, quote, the first ascension in America of Layla Adair. So did a contradictory San Francisco Call article, which further referred to her as, quote, the adventurous Australian aeronaut. Could Layla Adair have been one of the Van Tassel sisters, reborn under a new balloon name and with a new backstory after the death of her husband? It seems possible that Australian audiences might not have recognised her, given newspaper articles didn't come with photographs and most people had witnessed the 1890 tour at a considerable distance. A few photos of Layla Adair exist and there isn't any great resemblance to either Van Tassel, though this could be explained by the passage of years hair colouring and simply the poor quality of the images. Sadly, there is no way to untangle this parachuting mystery. But Professor Park Van Tassel, well, we do know his fate. He continued ballooning into the 20th century and even gave himself a promotion to captain. Later in life, having retired from the skies, he came full circle to his origins by establishing a company to manufacture toy balloons. Though at least three young people had died in his pursuit of fame and fortune, Park Van Tassel lived to the ripe old age of 78 and died of heart failure in California in 1930. Seven years later, over Essendon Airport, Jean Burns became the first Australian woman to parachute from a plane. In the year that followed, and over the initial objections of the Civil Aviation Authority, she made another dozen jumps, saving the money she earned towards buying her own plane. The most lucrative of her shows took place in Townsville. And yes, Jean jumped on a Sunday and no one complained. Jean Burns' skydiving career was stalled by the start of the Second World War, with pilots, planes and aviation fuel now vital resources. Jean married, had children, settled down and didn't skydive again. 
But her historic achievement wasn't entirely forgotten, with Burn Street at Essendon Airport named in her honour in 2008. Jean Burns, who was certainly a Van Tassel in spirit and action, passed away in May 2019, six months short of her 100th birthday. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating or review at iTunes as it helps the podcast reach other people. And if you want to see photos and articles about the people and events you've been hearing about, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia is produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundangara and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.